as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were, were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so we're going to see four different points of of, uh, contact here. Number one, we're going to see the call of Levi. Levi is another word for Matthew. You'll see this in Luke. If you you did turn to Luke, don't worry about turning there. But then you would see that in Luke, it gives us a, a, a more comprehensive picture of what's going on. And Levi is Matthew, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Um, number two, we're going to see that Jesus eats with sinners. Number three, we're going to see that the scribes are offended when Jesus eats with sinners. And number four, Jesus is going to set them straight, and especially in light of what his mission is. Um, but number one, okay, look at verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi. Now, Levi is sitting in a tax booth. And we've all probably heard somewhere or another that the tax collectors are not very welcoming people and they're not welcomed by the community at large. And it's actually, it goes beyond that. So uh, this is from a, a, a set of commentaries on the scriptures that the Old Testament, or excuse me, the scribes and the Pharisees of that time were using called the Talmud. And there's another one called the Mishnah. Okay, And in the Talmud, it says that the, the, um, the tax collectors are the same as murderers and thieves. They're expelled from the synagogue. They're a disgrace to their family. If a tax collector comes and touches your house, then your house becomes unclean. They could not be a witness in court. Okay, so in other words, remember the leper? This man, this this tax collector, is in a sense worse than a leper because a leper couldn't really help the fact that he has leprosy. A tax collector can. So what's the big deal about being a tax collector? Well, he's a traitor. In the eyes of the Jewish world at that time, he's a traitor because he's a pawn of Rome. He works for Rome. Not only is that, so everything he does, so what would happen is, as people bring their goods through a certain area, you have these tax collectors in these certain booths. So here they come with their goods. Let's say, I don't know, fishermen like, like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Because if he's in Capernaum, there's a good chance that Peter, James, Andrew, and John have run into this guy. Which is very, think about this, okay? So they're not, they're not really happy. In fact, everybody, you know people are following Christ right now. They're kind of, wherever Christ is at this point, there's a crowd. And so they know that Christ goes to this man and calls this man and says, follow me. Here's the thing though, okay? The tax collector, when you bring your goods, so you're required to give a certain tax to Rome, to Herod Antipas, who's going to give it to Rome, okay? But then in order for the tax collector to make his money, he's going to charge you an additional fee on top of the tax that you already owe to Rome. And so in order for him to get money, what they would do is they would charge you. And most of the time, they're going to charge you a lot, excessively. And that's why people despise these guys. Because number one, they're a traitor, they're, they're a reminder. It would be almost, I mean, think of the, I, you know, it's hard to think of parallels, but think if, if let's say, America was 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 invaded or overrun by, by China or Russia, and, um, and then someone turns around and begins to work for Russia, and, and they have to come and take our money and things like that, right? We're going to look at them as kind of like, oh, these guys are traitors. And so that's how it was, but probably on an intensified scale because the Jewish people were very proud of the fact that they were not Gentiles. Gentiles were dirty. Gentiles were unclean. Gentiles were pagan. Gentiles worshipped idols. Thankfully, they would say, we're not Gentiles. 
But what's worse than Gentiles is a Jew who intentionally goes and works for the Gentiles. And so here, this is Levi. This is Matthew. Now, again, I mentioned this in a minute or earlier. What happens is, is you can imagine, okay? So you can imagine when Christ goes and calls fishermen. You're like, all right, well, you know, that's not how we would do it. We would call scribe. We would call the smart people. We'd go to Jerusalem and go to the, the temple and get the, you know, get the Pauls. But Jesus calls fishermen, right? And then here, of all the people that Jesus is going to call and say, okay, come and follow me, he's going to call, I mean, the lowest rank of society that you could actually come up with. And not only that, within the mix. Now remember, and this I think is the application for us as Christians. Remember, okay, who is in the group? The fishermen that, assumingly, that that Levi would have taxed. But you also have, eventually, you have a guy called Simon the Zealot. Now Simon the Zealot, if you ever come across that word, and you're like, what does zealot mean? A zealot does not mean he was zealous, right? It means that it was a a political revolutionary sect of Jews living at that time who if anybody hated Gentiles and tax collectors, it would be Simon the Zealot. I mean, their point was to destroy them, overthrow them by whatever means possible, including violence. So think about who's in Jesus' group here, right? So you have this group who... On the surface of things, they are not going to get along. They're, they can't get along. It's impossible for them to get along. There's too much animosity. There's too much, in the, in the, there's too much baggage. But what Christ is doing here is what he does with the church at large around the world. Why were we able to say in the Apostles' Creed, the, 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 uh, the Catholic Church, the universal church? Well, it's because God is going around and He's saving people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We see that even in this, in this church. There's representatives here from all different kinds of cultures, backgrounds, you know, different, different jobs, different economic situations, different lifestyles, different interests. How is that possible? It's because of the Holy Spirit working in us. I cannot love somebody who is my enemy on my own. Right? I can't do that. And you can't, we can't do that. That's impossible. That's, that's, that goes against human nature. It's impossible. Now, unless there's some benefit for me, right? Unless you, but once that benefit ends, man, now we're at each other's throat again. Okay, so the purpose of this is for Christ to, and again, think about how controversial this is. I mean, this really is. This is scandalous. This is more scandalous than whenever he reached out and touched lepers. But then he goes a step further, the next verse, and we're going to come back to this, this, uh, this call to follow him later on. But this next verse, um, well, first of all, we do see Luke, he, he gets right up and he follows him. That's exactly what we saw Peter, James, John, and Andrew do. Remember when they were fishing, Jesus says, hey, follow me. They leave their nets, they come and they follow him. That's what Matthew's doing here. That's, that's, that's to show us this radical abandonment of their life, of everything they've known before. There is a picture of regeneration here. Because when somebody's been born again, your desires change, your, your interests change, even the things you used to really love, now you hate. The sin you used to really love, the, the sin you were enslaved to, you hate. Uh, but it's also here, Matthew is, uh, is being called in a ministry too. So, so uh, we saw that with Peter, James, Andrew, and John. So it's a little different than just regeneration, but there's definitely some insight there. So look at verse 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. Whose house? This, this, this guy who's such a scandal, right? He's at his house now. So it's not like, okay, you can follow me, but I'm, you know, that, just, just try to keep your distance, you know, when you're following me. Let's, let's keep like 10 feet back, you know. No, it's like Jesus is saying, okay, now I'm going to go to your house. Just like we see him do with who? Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Same thing happens in Luke chapter 19. Go to, go to uh, Luke chapter 19. 
So this would be way after this scene with with Matthew. Um, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. Right, so this guy's like the worst of of the worst. He's not just a tax collector. He's the boss of all the tax collectors, so he's really getting a good cut. So he's the chief tax collector. That's why he has so much. And he was rich, of course. How is he rich? Well, he's scamming everybody. And who is he scamming? His own countrymen, his own people. That'd be like if a Christian was scamming another Christian, right? We're like, hey, what's this? So that's what he's doing. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small as statue. Stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. So you see the right response there. That's the response. He comes down. He's not like, I don't know about you, Jesus. I just wanted to come and see if you're going to do miracles. I really don't want anything to do with you, though. But no, he comes down gladly. He's, he's, but verse 7, when, he, when they saw it, they all began to grumble saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, here's, here you're going to see repentance. Half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham, just like you are if you're in Christ, according to Galatians 3.8. Those who are children of Abraham are not those of the flesh, Necessarily, That's why Paul, what does Paul say? Hey, not all of Israel are actually Israel. Who are true Israelites? Those who believe in Abraham. Whether you're an ethnic Jew or whether you're a Gentile, a scum of the earth, dirty Gentile, if you believe in Christ, you're a child of Abraham, spiritually. He's a child of Abraham. He's been born again. Salvation has come to this man's house. Verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Who was lost? Zacchaeus. Who was lost? Levi. Who was lost? These tax collectors. So if you go back into the house in chapter 2 of Mark, so he's reclining at table. And by the way, so this was a a Greco-Roman type of um, posture. So I guess you would have a big center table in the middle, and you you would have your head towards the center, and your feet away from the table, thankfully, and everybody just kind of ate that way. And you'll see uh, if, if uh, Plato actually, Socrates, they'll talk about when they're at these banquets, they're like reclining. They, you know, I don't, I don't know how it would look, but anyway, so they're reclining at this table. The Jews actually adopted some of this from the Greco-Roman culture at that time, so they're assuming that that's what's going on. Um, but it says this, okay, many tax collectors and sinners. Now notice with Zacchaeus, the same thing is, is they were grumbling and they said, what is he doing going to this sinner's house? You're like, well, I don't know if he's a sinner. He's just, he's, he just has a crummy job. But again, in their mindset, who are the sinners? When they say sinners, remember in the Old Testament, turn to, uh, turn to Psalm, let's say 5. Let's turn to Psalm 5. And then when you get to Psalm 5, look at, uh, look at verse 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Do you see that part in verse 5 where it says, You hate all who do iniquity? Okay, now turn to Psalm 7. 
And look at verse look at verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. And then you go on to look at verse 12 of Psalm 7. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. Talking about the sinner. But here's the question, right? Okay, we can in a way ask ourselves, all right, so here we have a house full of tax collectors and sinners. And the scribes actually ask a very correct question in a way. Their question is correct in verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? That's the correct, that is the correct question. If he's a man of God, let's, let's ask that about ourselves, right? And then I'll show you where this is going, okay? Okay, you and I are tax collectors and sinners. We're no better than anybody in this house. We're no better. And the problem is, is of course, the scribes aren't any better either. The Pharisees are not any better either. But you and I are the same as these scribes, same as these, same as these, uh, excuse me, same as the tax collectors and sinners here in this house. And they're asking the right question: How is it that God is able to eat with these sinners? How is it that this man of God, who comes and he does these mighty, marvelous works in the name of God, how can he, how can he rub shoulders or, or, or you know, have anything to do with sinners? That's the right question. That's exactly the question because that right there is the heart of the gospel. How you answer that question is the heart of the gospel. If you say, well, it's because they're not as bad as, as, as the scribes actually thought. Well, then now we're getting into workspace salvation. We're getting into the, the, this idea that you can be good enough to achieve or attain your own salvation. But what we're seeing here in Scripture, think about what God does throughout the Bible. Okay, Turn with me right here. Uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And next week we'll be having the Lord's Supper. So this is a reminder of this, but look. On the first day, look at verse 12. Excuse me, Mark 12, 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, etc., etc. Okay, look at verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. As they were doing that, Jesus said, truly I say to you, etc. And he goes on and says that somebody's going to betray me. What are they doing? Who is Jesus eating with? Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners still. He's still doing that. Now, metaphorically speaking, right? Peter, whenever Jesus comes to Peter in Luke, and and Peter realizes who Jesus is, Peter's out there fishing, Peter's out there, he can't catch anything, Jesus is like, hey, do this. He does it, he's like, oh, this, this this is the Messiah. He goes to shore, and he falls down at Christ's feet, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinful man. He actually, excuse me, he says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. What is the response anytime the presence of God comes to somebody, they fall on their faces and they realize, I'm unworthy, I'm unclean, I'm undone, I'm filthy, I'm a sinner, I'm a tax collector. 
And so the question is, of course, well, how in the world can God, who is holy, righteous, and just, and His eyes are too pure to look upon evil? He can't look at evil with any kind of favor, with any kind of gladness. His response to evil is, in a sense, kind of, you know, we, we understand this in our own responses to evil. If, you, if, if something bad happens to you or some kind of injustice happens in your life, do you respond with, with anger, righteous indignation? Kind of like, what's going on here? Right? Now, imagine a... A pure God, a God who loves holiness, a God who is holiness Himself. He he Himself is holy. Of course, His expression, His reaction towards evil is anger, righteous indignation. And here we are, the Bible says that we, in our own sin, Romans 3 says, there is none who does good, no, not one. Whether you're a scribe, whether you're a Pharisee, whether you're a preacher, whether you're whoever you are, No one does good, no, not one. It even says that no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. So here we are, we're unclean, we're undone, and we have a God who hates sin, and the Bible says we're sinners. How then can we have fellowship with God? How can we eat with God? You know, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we express that this is a meal with God. How can God, who is clean and holy and pure, eat with the unclean and the impure and the unholy? How can He do that? Well, we know how He does it. Eventually, Christ is going to go to the cross. In fact, even before He goes to the cross, He's in the process of redeeming His people right now by virtue of living a perfect life. Remember when He overcomes the temptation of Satan? What's He doing? He's making a way to to, to redeem His people. He's also setting up His kingdom on earth. But everything He does on earth is for for the sake of redeeming His people. Because here we are, we are... We are imperfect in every word, thought, and deed. Christ, flip it around, He is perfect in every word, thought, and deed. And then when He goes to the cross, He suffers the wrath of God on behalf of His people so that His people will never have to suffer the wrath of God. How is it that we in the eyes of God today, how is it that we can have this table fellowship next week with God? How is it that we can partake of that? It's because in the eyes of God today, we're righteous. Well, how is that? Well, because by God's grace, He's robed us in the righteousness of Christ. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, in Him. So that bridge, that, that chasm has been, has been taken care of by Christ. Now it doesn't mean that when we say we're righteous, it doesn't mean that we're sinless. You know, you have a group that's called sinless perfectionists, um, and I have no idea how they can honestly assume that they are sinless and perfect. I mean, that's, that's, that's mind-boggling. But it is to say, it's like Luther said, we are both just and sinners. So we are striving in the flesh against our sin and waging war against our sin. But at the same time, we're able to have this fellowship with God in virtue of what Christ has already done for us. So the scribes, again, they ask the right question, but they're not looking at the right person in order to, to have an answer for how, how can he do this. They don't, they don't quite see that this is the Christ, the Messiah, who's going to lay down His life for His people. Even though Christ will say it over and over again as we go on. But let's go back. Okay, So we're seeing that this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. You see this in Exodus 24. Uh, God tells all the elders to come up on the mountain, and it says that, that they ate with Him. Same thing. Let me turn to that, actually. Exodus 24, 9-12. through 12. Exodus 24, 9-12. This is, uh, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Now, who is Nadab and Abihu? 
they are going to be obliterated later on for, for, for worshiping with, with, uh, for offering strange fire. But the 70 elders of, the Israel, uh, elders of Israel, verse 10, And they saw the God of Israel, and under His feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet He did not stretch out His hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. You see this when Abraham is sitting at his tent, and God comes with two angels. And he has food with Abraham. Abraham feeds, they eat together. This is the expression of God. This is, and of course this is important because this is the ultimate, the truest expression of fellowship, of acceptance of a person. You eat with them. You dine with them. It's an intimate thing. Whenever you have some kind of business transaction or some kind of serious thing, right? What do you say? Hey, let's go get a bite to eat and talk about this. And over the course of the meal or after the meal or however that works, I mean, it's still true in our own culture. But this is a very, I mean, it's like, hey, I can, I, can, I can treat a person one way, but once he comes into the home and we eat together, there's something else that happens. It's a different kind of experience, right? Um, and that's just a, a human reality. That, and of course, Christ taking on flesh is very much aware of it. Um, so they ask the right questions, though. Now, let me also say this, though. This is also an anticipation of what's called the Messianic Banquet. The, 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 the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll see this if you turn to Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 9. So imagine all the different characters who are at this table. Okay, there, there, are, there are sinners. I mean, can you imagine if we started rehearsing, all of us here, all the sins and the junk and the mess that we've all been in somewhere or another. Right? And we saw, and you, you know what? We have a bunch of rough you know, scarred individuals in this church right now. And yet, just like, I mean, this, this is the beauty of it, right? This has always been God's church from the very beginning. You take people, go back to the Apostle Paul, who was persecuting Christians, putting Christians to death. You go to Peter, who was this really rambunctious, kind of energetic guy, but you can tell he's, he's, he's probably not the most pious individual. So there's a lot of this going on, but that's who see God is gathering in all types of people. And we see this here at this supper, but we also see this, look at 25, 6 through 9. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God to whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And if you go to, uh, Christ actually mentions something similar in Luke chapter 13, verse 29. Luke 13, verse 29. This is what Christ says in anticipation of this banquet. He says, on the one hand, He says, there will be people who He will tell, um, I do not know where you are from. Depart from Me, all you evildoers. Again, who's an evildoer here? We should say, who's not an evildoer here, right? Who's not an evildoer? We're all evildoers. It's a matter of whether or not you've, you've, you've submitted to that fact and go to the one, the only one who can deliver you from that evil, which is Christ and His blood. But this is what he says. In that, in that place, for the evildoers, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table. The same phrase that we see over here in Mark. They will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. It's amazing. And then you see it lastly in uh, Revelation 19, 7 through 10. Revelation 19, 7 through 10. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at His feet to worship Him, an angel. Because He's so overtaken and overwhelmed by, this, by, this, the, by, by the magnitude and the majesty of this angel that He falls down. But the angel says, no, no, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He's so undone and overwhelmed by this idea that there will be a day, and this is a picture of that day still to come, where we'll be feeding and feasting lavishly with God Himself at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's called the, the, the messianic banquet. Okay, so we're seeing this happen in a sense. It's a picture of that in Mark chapter 2. Um, now, and lastly, what we'll see here, what we do see here, so, so uh, verse 17, in hearing this, Jesus said to them, because remember, they're like, why, wait, what, what, how, why is He eating with these tax collectors and sinners? Okay, in hearing this, again, He hears them say this, it's very... I tell you, he doesn't have to even respond to this. It's amazing. He could have just kind of let them grumble and complain and move on. But just like we saw last week, when they're grumbling in their hearts, Jesus calls them out. Why? To express his actual mission, his actual function. To call them, in a sense, to repentance also. Because as we've seen earlier on, you know, if, if you're exposed to the gospel, if you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you don't respond in faith, and you die in your sins then what will happen is on the day of judgment, there will be worse judgment for you than, than if you had never heard the gospel. And Jesus tells us that when He's talking about, woe to you, Capernaum, woe to you, these cities. Why? The gospel has gone to these places and you've rejected it. He says it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for these people in these places that hear the gospel being preached. Have Jesus Christ in front of them. When the gospel is being preached, you know, that's the Word of God on a platter. There it is, Right? So that's why whenever he's doing this, when he's going around, he's calling out these scribes and Pharisees. In a sense, he's holding them accountable for their unrighteousness, for the fact that they are in their sins. And here's the Messiah being offered, and they reject that. But who doesn't reject it? The tax collectors, the sinners. This is why. Verse 17, And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so you see three things here. Number one, he came for the sick, not the healthy. Okay? And number two, he came for the sinners, not the righteous. And then lastly, notice he does say he came to call them. Okay, So there's a call here. But remember this, okay? if you turn with me to John chapter 9, remember there was a man who was born blind. And Jesus comes and he heals this man. And look at verse 35 when you get to John 9. He heals this man. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're, they're really confused and upset because they're like, wait a minute, okay, how did this guy who was born blind receive a sight? Like, what, what happened? And the guy's like, well, I told you what happened. This man came and he, you know, he did this and that, and, and, and then now I can see. 
And they're like, all right, all right, all right. But, but do you think he is the Messiah? They're, they're grilling him and stuff. Finally, he confesses, yeah, I think he is the Messiah. So they, they kick him, they, they kick him out, of the, uh, out of the synagogue. So he can no longer have any kind of fellowship with, with the Jewish community now. And for them, that's a big deal. That's your, that's, your, that's, your, uh, that's your whole community. That's your school. That's where you eat. Those are your neighbors. That's everything. And they're like, boom, you're gone. But after this, this is what Christ says in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, this blind, this man who was blind. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And notice Jesus doesn't reject it like the angel did. What does that tell us? Jesus is God. If a creature is not God, he's not going to accept the worship of man. But here he worships him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. What's he saying? If you had seen yourself as someone who's spiritually blind, spiritually bankrupt, spiritually evil, then you would receive your sight. But because you don't see that you are spiritually blind, spiritually evil, spiritually bankrupt, not a good person, because you think you're a good person, you're blind. See that? Just like going back to what he's saying with the, with the... He's not saying that, hey, I just came exclusively only for people who are really, really evil, like tax collectors and sinners. He's saying, you guys are missing the whole thing. These guys recognize that they are sinners. These guys recognize that they are sick, that they are unhealthy, that they do need a Savior. And it's more than sick. You know, it's that our entire being is twisted and deformed and undone. It's... it's, uh, it's Look at Romans 3. Because this is, this is the plight of all of us. This is the Pharisee, this is the scribe, this is the preacher, this is... Okay, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Except for my grandma. She was really righteous, right? She was a really good person. No, but she, I mean... But then she, she, she lied every now and then. You know, and if you tell one lie, you're not a good person. You're not righteous. You're a liar. So Granny's disqualified, you know. She, of course, she, she's not perfect. We know that she's not righteous. Now, according to our world standards, according, you know, when you compare people to, you know, anybody in America, who, I mean, it's easy to be a righteous person, but that's not the standard. The standard is God. The standard is God's nature, holiness, righteousness, loving, like we saw earlier today. What's the greatest commandment? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we haven't done that, we're not righteous. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And Paul is setting up uh, uh, really a universal condemnation of everybody so that everybody, well, as far as what, what, would be, what, what his desire is, is that everybody would see, like in verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it's about. When you see that, what do you do with it? Right? Because here's the thing. A lot of times people are like, well, you know, I don't really, I don't, I don't, you know, I know I'm not perfect. And I know, yeah, you can say I'm a sinner. But, I mean, I'm not really doing anything about it. Right? And if that's your attitude, do you really see yourself as a sinner? Do you really see yourself as somebody? Because here's the thing. When you're thinking of, 
these tax collectors, or excuse me, the Pharisees and the scribes, um, they're all looking around and they're seeing these people gather at the banquet of Christ. Okay, why do they do that? Well, it's because, and this gets us into our application. Okay, there's three points. Because number one, these are people who follow Christ. Now, it's not to say that all these people at the banquet are believers at this point. We don't know. We can't say, right? There's no, we, we don't know that. But it is to say, it is a picture of the banquet to come. That's true. And it is a, a, what Christ is saying here is that I'm coming for those who recognize themselves to be evil, to be undone, to be sinners, even though all of us are in that condition. Do you recognize that you're in that condition? Or are you blind? Are you spiritually blind? Self, self-deceit. Like Jeremiah 79 says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Think about that. The Bible says that the most deceitful thing in the entire universe, deceitful above all else, is the heart of man. And it doesn't take us long, if we're being honest, to realize that. We deceive ourselves. We want to be more righteous than we are. We want to be more pious than we are. We want to be better than we are. We want, right? That's how we are. So we're undone. If we see that, we recognize we're undone, how do we respond now? We go to Christ. We go to the only one who can help us, the only one who can save us from our sins. That's what, that's what Matthew does. The scum of the earth, the scandal of the entire society. He recognizes, I'm undone. I'm a sinner, just like Zacchaeus. So he comes after him, he follows him. And just like we saw last week, you know, faith is more than just saying it with our mouth. It's a response that happens with our actions, with our, with our feet, with our hands, how we live. How we act is not to say we're perfect, but it is to say there will be a change in our life. Something will happen where we're different, we're changed, we're changed people. He goes from this job and assumingly he drops the job. Um, And it involves risk and it involves cost. It involves discomfort. It does. Because everything's going to be new. Everything's different. The, the, The sin, the lifestyle, the people in our lives, everything becomes different once we're born again. It surely does. And then it becomes uncomfortable. Because now it's like, man, what do I... I remember when I first got saved, and, uh, and I was very... Uh, I, was, I was kind of a coward, you know, and I wouldn't... Um, Eric knows a lot of the guys probably. But, you know, they would come over to the house, and I, I, I moved out of the girl's house that I was living with, and I moved in with my brother. And, uh, and, and my brother and I had the same friends, so everybody still come to party. You know, and I didn't want to party anymore. I was just like, man, I, I really don't want to party. And so they're coming back to the room where I'm, you know, my room and stuff. And they're like, dude, what's wrong? Come on, come party. And I'm like, and I, I was a coward. I was kind of like, well, you know, I've been, I've been kind of reading the Bible. And, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, who cares, man? So have we. Let's go party. You know? <laughs> it's like, nah, I've really been reading it, though. Right. They're like, yeah, so have we. Let's go. I went to, you know, I went to church last week. Let's go. You go to church tomorrow. But then I started, you know, something was really happening. Something's changing. And it's not all at once, you know. There were still some hiccups and still hard. But but the thing is, is when God begins working in us, we begin to follow Him. And it's uncomfortable. The friends aren't going to understand it. You know, your, 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 your boss might not understand it. Your workplace might look a little different once you've been born again. For, for Levi, that was the case. Can you imagine Levi coming into this group? Even the group that he goes into, just like Paul. When Paul saved, he's trying to go with the apostles. And they're like, dude, get this guy out of here. He's the guy that kills Christians. Paul's like, no, 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 I'm, you know, I'm, I'm saved. So it's not an easy life, but it's, it's, it's a blessed life. It's worth it. And so number one, application. Follow Christ. He's the only thing that can happen. Because here's the thing. Regardless of all the persecution, regardless of all the friends that you lose, I mean, I, I think we can all attest, right? I mean, praise God for... 
not to be cliche, right? But you do get a new family. You do get new friends who actually have their minds and their, 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 their goals set on the things of God. And not only that, in the midst of the trial and in the midst of the discomfort and in the conflict and the spiritual warfare and everything that, that takes place, there is a certain sweetness when you're going through those trials that you don't get when you're not going through any trials. Because you know in those trials that Christ is with you. I guarantee you, just like we saw when Christ goes to the man who was born blind and He comforts that man after He's booted, I guarantee you that Christ was, was very uh, understanding and, and pastoral with, with, with Levi, who's coming into this really awkward situation. You have people of, you know, the disciples that, that would not have liked Him there, assumingly, or at least been uncomfortable. Okay, so follow Him. Number two... Don't forget the DNA of the church consists of tax collectors and sinners. We're not always going to have nice, polished, you know, uh, 1689 or, or Westminster Confession of Faith reform people coming in, you know, who's been in the church for 80 years. And, and we, I mean, that's great for sure, right? But that's not, that shouldn't be the standard. That should not be the standard. This, the, what you really see in the church is, is messiness, people coming from all kinds of broken situations, and it's difficult at times, and there's a lot of shepherding, a lot of counseling, a lot of time that involves from all of us, right? But ultimately, this is the point. The DNA of the church is not the righteous people, it's the sick people, it's the unhealthy people. That's not to say the church is for the lost people, right? It's for people who have been converted, who've, who've come, and now they're st- well, we're still messy. Right? I don't know. I mean, I name, you know, does anyone here, you know, have a, have a life that's not messy in certain areas, right? In a lot of areas, maybe. But that's the point. The DNA of the church has always been this way, okay? Because we're in the process of becoming more like Christ. This church is in the process of becoming more and more and more conformed to the image of God. Because it consists of people who are being more and more and more conformed to the image of God. But then we'll take on new people who are way, way over here. Alright? And so we have to spend time. So in other words, especially in a church plant, that's the exciting part. You know, you get new people, you get, and people start kind of gelling and meshing. And it's like, this is great. But then you, you also realize, hey, you get people from all different types of, of backgrounds. Praise the Lord. Um, and also along the same line, you know, bring the gospel to the unclean. Bring the gospel to the sinners. Let me give you a passage here in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. 11 through 13. Paul says this, I, uh, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Um, do you not judge those who are within the church? Excuse me, go up to verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. Right? In other words, he's like, I'm not saying you have to come out. I'm saying, look, in the world, in your everyday life, you are going to be surrounded by the immoral, by the drunkards, by the swindlers. by, And as you're in this, that's how God uses us to build His church. Because we are out. If it was just a bunch of church people, we, we you know, not, it would just stay within us, you know, and, and maybe some kids, if you have kids, you know, or whatever. But no, that's not the mission. Christ says to go to all the nations. Go out into Clovis, go out into Roswell, go out into wherever you, uh, Roswell, Portales, you know, Sudan, all these areas. And get, don't get messy. That's the danger, right? Because a lot of times they're, they're like, well, you know, this is like be all things to all people. And, you know, you got the, 
you got the strippers down there, you know, and so in order to be all things to the strippers, I got to like go to the strip club. And uh, we actually had this happen with the guy in Lubbock. You know, we're like, dude, that's not, that's not what Paul is talking about. So don't compromise, don't sin, but at the same time realize that God uses us to save his people by sending us out into the community where things are messy. Okay, um, and then lastly, I'll end with this: Are you a Pharisee or a sinner? Are you a Pharisee, or are you a sinner? There's really only two options, right? If you're a sinner, then run to Christ because He's 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 willing to save anyone who comes to Him. If you're a Pharisee, then like we just saw Paul, uh, Jesus tell the blind man or the Pharisees around the blind man, right? You're blinded. You're blinded. And the only thing that can open your eyes is the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing, right? For the Pharisee, you know what keeps a Pharisee a Pharisee? They love themselves. They love themselves too much. Christ says to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him. Love yourself enough to deny yourself. You're not good enough to go to heaven on your own. You're not righteous enough. There's no one who does good, no, not one, but God has loved us so much that He gave us His his only begotten Son. And that's what we see Christ doing in His life. Going around saving the the unclean and the sinners and the evil people. So let's praise God for that. Father, we do thank You that You came, or You sent Your Son to come for for sinners and not the righteous. We thank You that in, in Your mercy that You've saved Your people here. We thank You that... Lord, truly, we are tax collectors and, and sinners and, and, and left to our own devices. Lord, we know how evil we are because you have given us insight into how evil we are. And we thank you for that. Thank you for driving us to Jesus Christ by showing us these, these unpleasant truths about ourselves. We pray that you would be with those who are not your people here today, that you would give them grace to see the, the horrid condition of their spiritual state that You would give them eyes to behold the beauty of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the One who laid down His life for sinners, the One who though He died, yet He lives today. We know that Christ Himself is amongst us and in our presence right now. So God, we pray not because we deserve it, but because You're merciful. We pray that You would strengthen Your people. Give us grace to grow in grace and in knowledge. Give us grace to love each other to love those who are difficult to love. We all, we all know our, our, in our families, everything. Lord, we, Lord, give us extra grace, supernatural grace, abundant grace, remembering that we ourselves are the unlovable ones, and yet you loved us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.